prominent face that lots of young men like to listen to. I'm going to make a point that I will be driving after this. That's right. I'm no longer locked in my house. And because I will be driving after this podcast, I'm going to drink absolutely nothing. The best policy to drinking and driving, whether to know if you're drunk enough, is very simple. Drink zero drinks. Always. If you have to drink, if you're in a situation where you want to drink, then don't drive at all. Ever. Not one meter. Not one drink. Not one beer. It's the best policy to live by, in my opinion, and I kind of stick to it myself. I'll very rarely find myself driving after having one beer or two beers, which is the legal limit in lots of countries. Here in Romania, the legal limit is zero, which I kind of like, because if I ever have to go anywhere, I'll get in the back of the Maybach. Oh, yeah, I have cars again. That's surprising. But I thought they took all my cars. I thought they took all my cars, and when I was finally free, I wouldn't have any cars to drive. But now I have a Porsche, a McLaren, and a Maybach the same day I'm released. What a coincidence. They must have just missed these ones. I mean, they're quite small. They're inconspicuous just sitting on the driveway. So they must have just, you know, forgot to pick these up because they picked so many others up. But I'm glad to have my cars back. But I have a Mercedes. I have drivers. It's very luxurious in the back. So why on earth would I ever do something as foolish as drink and drive? So no drinks tonight. I do, however, have a Red Bull. Well done, Bailey. I don't know when he put that there. Well played. I must have been in the bathroom. If this is your first time joining me, and I'll assume it's not, then you know how these evenings work. It's very simple. I sit, I smoke my cigar, I answer the questions that have been asked to me. People like to know my opinions on things and how things are going in my life and in the world. And after I've blessed everybody with enough knowledge and this cigar is down to the point where it's burning my fingers, I hang up and I go into my life. Now, the first thing that everyone's been asking me about, and I am going to address this quickly, is the case. Everyone wants to talk about the case all the time. You have to understand, for me, the case is extremely boring. It's extremely boring because this attack has been, um, this attack was set upon my brother and I 15 months ago, which is a very long time. And from day one of this attack, we knew all of the details of why it started, how it started, who was involved, why the American embassy gave the Romanians the the um, order to come and raid my house because it was not the Romanians. It's not Romania's fault. We knew all of this. We had seen every message. We had seen every signed piece of paper. Uh, however, we haven't been able to talk about it. And still to not interfere with the judicial process at all in Romania, I'm not going to talk about it at all. But what I am going to say is now the information, because ch uh, charges have been filed, now... The charges have been filed. Typically, if the charges indicated very strongly that I was a human trafficker, I would either be, th I'd probably be thrown back in prison at the very least, kept on house arrest. But obviously, one of the finest judges in this great country looked at it and said, let them go. But now that ch uh, files have been, uh, charges have been filed, things are starting to leak. And I'm going to point you all towards a video rather than speak about it myself and speak about the revelations of what's going on and speak about exactly why this happened to me. Who made this happen and why? Who did they speak to? What are the chat logs? I'm not going to bring that up. But a very good friend of ours, Miss Candace Owens. Well, I wouldn't say very good friend yet, but a wonderful woman. Her and her husband, absolutely wonderful people. It was a pleasure having them here. Candace Owens yesterday released a video uh, where she freely got access to this information and she spoke about it. So if you don't know who Candace Owens is, follow her over on Twitter 
And one of the last posts was a live uh, stream from last night where she streamed this documentary detailing exactly why this happened to me. Um, it covers things that I've been sitting on the edge of my seat, biting my tongue, waiting to say for a year and a half. I still won't say them now. But can you imagine after you learn the information, once you learn what she's now shown to the world, that I've known all this stuff all along and I've had to sit here as the father of a daughter being called a human trafficker because of this for a year and a half, that I've sat in jail knowing all of this information. It takes extreme willpower and an extremely iron mind to not talk and to not let the world know what was going on and to not let the world what had happened to me and why. But Candace does a very good job. So I'm actually just going to redirect you over to her page very quickly. And then I'm going to change subject because I've had far more interesting questions come through to me than questions about the case. All I talk about is the case, all my lawyers want to talk about is the case, all my friends want to talk about is the case. I get it. But the case is no longer important to me. I have been innocent since day one. I know I'm innocent. God knows I'm innocent. My brother knows I'm innocent. Everyone involved knows I'm innocent. The accusers know I'm innocent. The people working to put me in jail know I'm innocent. So whatever happens, happens at this point. But everything is moving in the right direction. My freedoms are being restored to me. I can now drive around the city and enjoy myself and drive my luxury supercars, which I somehow for some reason still have. And everything's looking good. What I will say is I want to give a shout out quickly to all of the losers who run accounts on Twitter, and they have done for a year and a half. And the entire purpose of their account is to try to prove that me and Andrew are guilty of crimes. Now, they're bringing up weird old videos edited and cut that aren't in the case file, that the police aren't interested in, that the police aren't looking at, that nobody's looking at, that have nothing to do with this case. And they're posting them saying, look, this is a this is a detail about a crime. And, you know, this screenshot of this conversation is proving this. None of this is in the case file, by the way. I just want to give a shout out to these Twitter detectives, these brave Twitter detectives who spent a year and a half of their life telling everyone that I'm never coming out of jail, then that I'm going back to jail, then that I'm never coming off house arrest. And now I'm on I'm released, free to do as I please around Romania. Uh, they seem uh, very upset. They haven't said much. They've, they've, they've been very quiet. Uh, what I will argue is this. When they do post and they say something as stupid as, well, technically he can't go outside of Bucharest very far because blah, blah, blah. I used to come to Bucharest for fun. This is a city I used to come to for fun. I've got a nine-bedroom mansion here. Supercars, friends, a network. My daughter. And I can drive around Bucharest doing anything I like. And this is the city that I voluntarily chose to spend my time in, to spend my life in, to move to. And I'm never leaving Bucharest. I'm going to move. I'm going to live here essentially probably for the rest of my life, amongst other places. So being in Bucharest isn't much of a punishment, is it? In fact, what I would say to you people, before you type your posts about how hard it must be for me, being stuck in Bucharest with my millions of dollars and my supercars and my mansion and my wonderful, fun life. So anyway, as I was saying, Twitter detectives, thank you for uh, keeping this relevant. Thank you for keeping it in everyone's minds. Obviously, you are losers. And if you had to go on vacation to Bucharest, you could not afford a day in my life. If you had to rent three supercars, a Maybach to transport you around, a, a Porsche GT4 RS and a McLaren 765LT and pay for an Airbnb as luxurious as my house, it would cost you what you make in six months. So for you to sit there and think that I'm under any kind of restriction, I will reverse that and say you are the ones under restriction.
You are the ones who are imprisoned. You are the ones who are not free. You are not free because you do not have the power to think as I do. You do not have the power to do as I do. And you are going to be in prison for the rest of your life. I would rather be Tristan Tate and serve three months in prison and six, seven months on house arrest unjustly than live a single day in the life of any of the dorks who run these accounts trying to prove I'm guilty because I know who they all are. I know what they all look like. They're fat. They're sad. They live in tiny houses with ugly wives and kids that don't love them and appreciate them. They're very low income. They have too much spare time and they spend all their days on the internet. So here I am stuck in Bucharest. Tell me how bad it is. I'm waiting for your posts. Wonderful. We're going to move on from anything related to do with the case. And we're going to talk about a question which is coming up very often. And my cigar went out. Fucking amateur hour. What is this shit? Dicking around with the computer too much, my cigar went out. But that's good. It buys you extra time because you're here to buy cigar runs out. I'd like to talk a little bit about the webcamming business and the webcamming industry. Because on the back of these Twitter detectives, everyone's been bringing up the fact that I used to run a webcam studio. I did huge podcasts with Stefan Molyneux, uh, Mike Cernovich. I mean, people who disagree with me and disagree with the webcamming industry, of course. But I did podcasts with these people back in the day discussing the ins and outs of the industry. And people think that this is somehow linked to my case. It's not. Romania is a very popular city, is a very popular country for this kind of work. So are most countries in Eastern Europe. Now Miami, the United States, South America are hotspots for this kind of work. Webcamming and the webcam studio had nothing to do with my case at all. But a good question I get asked is, how can you tell men not to watch porn? How can you, how hypocritical is it of you, Tristan, to look at men and say, do not watch porn when you used to run a webcamming studio? First and foremost, I'd like to differentiate between a webcam studio and porn. You should not watch either. When I say don't consume this content, I am talking about webcam models. The webcamming business and the porn business are two very different things. The webcamming business is girls on their laptops by themselves, most of the time non-naked, most of the time just talking, uh, getting paid tips, etc., for their time. And porn is actively shooting human sexual intercourse, which is a whole different kettle of fish. And it's much worse in every single way. However, I do tell men not to interact with e-girls, not to subscribe to OnlyFans, not to watch webcam models. So who am I to do this? What a hypocrite, right? Well, here's what I find funny. In the world, people speak from positions of authority, and authority comes from knowledge. If I were a reformed porn addict who used to watch porn all the time for years, and I were to come along and say, hey, young men of the world, don't watch porn, people would be like, oh, brave. Thank you, Tristan. Thanks for speaking out. If I were a drug addict and I were to say, young men of the world, hey, don't take drugs. I know they're bad because I'm a drug addict. People would clap. Here's what the difference is. If I were a reformed drug dealer, as many rappers are, as many motivational speakers are, as many former criminals are who turn their lives around, as Malcolm X allegedly was, I'll say allegedly because he was never convicted, I I don't believe, uh, before he found God and turned his life around. If I was a reformed drug dealer and I said, don't take drugs, Drugs are bad. You shouldn't be doing those, young men. Everyone would clap their hands and say, wow, Tristan, you came from a drug dealer to to where you are now. And now you're telling young men not to take drugs, even though you're a former dealer. Well done to you. Here's the thing. 
I know the insides and the outs of the e-girl business. I was never in the porn business, but I'll call it the e-girl industry better than anyone else in the world. So who better than me as a man no longer involved in the industry at all to tell young men that you shouldn't be involving yourself in this type of work, in this type of entertainment? If I say that young men shouldn't be doing it because it's a scam, you shouldn't be coming at me saying, well, that's hypocritical because you used to run studios. What you should be saying is, oh, wow, this guy, you know, used to run studios and he's telling us it's a scam. Why is it a scam? And it's a scam in every single way, as you know. You know, because the girls don't really like you. They don't really know you. You're not really talking to the girl most of the time. And some of my haters have brought this up. They said, oh, well, if you're a man and you're pretending to be the girl. No, no, no. That's not how it works. There's no man pretending to be the girl. Any sexual talk or flirting, that's the girl. You just The, the girls are just taught tips. If the guy's old, say you're into older guys. If the guy's young, say you're into younger guys. Go. Talk. But it's all a scam. The girls don't really like you. They're not really interested in you. No matter how big of a fan you are of them, your favorite TikTokers, your favorite e-girls, your favorite webcam streamers, your favorite porn girls, they find you detestable and they find you creepy because you are detestable and you are creepy. It's a very detestable and creepy thing to do and to indulge in it. And if you are the type of person who finds that entertaining at all, there's something wrong with you and you need to detox from the internet. So keep in mind when people say, oh, well, Tristan used to do this and he tells young men to stay away from it. No, I was never in the porn business. I was in the e-girl management business. And uh, yeah, I tell men to stay away because I know what really goes on behind the scenes. And another point I'll make is being in the e-girl management business, according to about five or six people, the Twitter detectives, is human trafficking somehow. Okay, interesting. Thought experiment. I don't know who in the chat. Tell me if you live in any of the following cities. Any of them. LA, Miami, Bucharest, Budapest, Warsaw, London, Paris, Madrid. Anyone from any of those places? Medellin, Colombia, South America, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Anyone from any of those places? Great. Wonderful. Lots of people popping up in the chat. Well, how many girls who are either OnlyFans models, a business that I'm not involved in, but how many of those girls that are OnlyFans girls or webcam streamers do you know? How many do you know? Type it in the chat. 10, 20, hundreds, half the girls I know. All sorts of answers coming in here. Lots of people, right? Well, let me tell you something. At least 75% of those girls work for management companies. 75%. They work for big studios. They work for management companies that... Um, do the typing and stuff for them. I'm getting lots of zeros here too. Cool. You think it's zero, but it's probably a lot more than zero, but I'm getting some big numbers also. Um, 75, 80%, yeah, work for management companies. Is that human trafficking? Cool. Arrest the CEO of OnlyFans for human trafficking. Arrest the uh, people who run the big webcams, websites for trafficking. Arrest the owner of every webcam studio for trafficking. Well, Romanian prisons would be full for sure. So keep in mind that that business is completely legal and tax payable, and it has nothing to do with human trafficking, nothing to do with my case. So I've covered the webcam questions because I have got quite a lot of those recently. I just thought I'd clear the air a little bit because Twitter detectives are obsessed with this business. They're obsessed with that line of work, probably because they're massive customers themselves. I'd imagine these Twitter detectives have given all their money to some e-girl somewhere and they don't, don't like the idea that a manager like me took a percentage because they're butthurt. And then me and the girl laughed at him afterwards. That's probably why they're so upset being perfectly honest. But I was an atheist back then. 
as Andrew quite frankly, uh, quite rightly said on the Candace Owens podcast, I mean, I made videos where I said, God isn't real and I'm an atheist. I'm far more ashamed of that than any behavior I engaged in in my 20s uh, of any kind. So yeah, atheism is not the way. Go to church, go to the mosque, go to the synagogue if you need to. Any of the monotheistic religions is a step up from atheism. So speaking of which, a man recently got in trouble. Hey, Tristan, what do you think of Jamie Foxx's latest comment where he joked that he kills all the white people in the movie and laughs about it? Should he get away with that? First and foremost, I want to say, Jamie Foxx, I'm glad you're doing better. I'm glad that you're healthy. Um, your health problems, obviously, lots of people are praying for you. I tweeted publicly on Twitter that I was praying for you. But he made a joke when he says, I get to kill all the white people in the movie. Isn't that funny? Ha ha ha. It is funny because he's a comedian and it's a joke. This is what I don't understand. Everyone gets so butthurt when comedians say things. I mean, if a politician said it, it would be very different. And we're going to get to that in a moment because there are prominent politicians who are saying things like that. But Jamie Foxx is a comedian and it is a joke. So I really think get over it. I don't believe that Jamie Foxx is a racist. I don't believe that he should be apologizing to anybody. Um, I actually would like to see the return of racist comedy. Racist comedy was very, very funny. Back in the day, there were comedians like Roy Chubby Brown, who was a white guy making jokes about black people. Uh, Eddie Murphy famously loved to rip on white people and all of his uh, comedy stand-ups. And it was funny. Uh, Eddie Murphy didn't mean it. I don't know much about Roy Chubby Brown, but some of his jokes are funny. But as a half black, half white individual, if you go to a comedy show and you know what kind of comedy the comedian says, uh, you shouldn't be getting offended. In fact, I think, and this is a revolutionary idea that I just kind of came up off the top of my mind. Ready? The world is too sensitive for racist comedy anymore. Everyone wants to be a little crybaby because no one thinks anything's funny and everything has to be taken absolutely literally. And if you say anything, that's a joke. You're evil and you're Hitler. So how about this? I'm going to make a proposal to all the comedians out there. Ricky Gervais, thank me later. Jamie Foxx, thank me later. You can thank me later for this wonderful idea. Dear Dave Chappelle, here's what you do, Eddie Griffin. If you are a black comedian, you go on stage in whiteface and make jokes about black people. Who can possibly get offended? Nobody. But then we'd have some great racist comedy back. Because racism, racist comedy is a joke. Look at Rush Hour. Rush Hour 1, Rush Hour 2. You couldn't make movies like that today. Why? It's funny. Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker are like best friends in real life, aren't they? They're clearly not racist people. So no, I don't think Jamie Foxx should have apologized to anyone for making that joke. I think that Jamie Foxx is uh, funny. And I kind of laughed. It wasn't his best joke, but I think everyone should get over it. But that actually does bring me on to a much more serious topic. And I have been asked about this a few times. People said, hey, Tristan, talisman. People are asking me on Twitter, what is your uh, opinion on things that are happening in Africa? Which is a lot more serious, in my opinion. Now, when people say the things that are happening in Africa, Africa's a huge continent filled with all sorts of different countries and currencies and peoples and languages. What part of Africa are you talking about? Uh, there are two main parts of Africa right now where things are going on, and I'm going to give my opinion on both of them. South Africa is linked into what I was saying with Jamie Foxx because a South African politician was, was actually saying 
kill the white people. He was chanting it, which is obviously a very scary, scary thing to hear anybody say. And a lot of people seem very confused about South Africa. And I'm not going to discuss the politics of the situation too much. I'm going to discuss the history of the situation slightly, just so everyone kind of knows what's going on there and what's what people want to happen and what people don't want to happen. I... I'm getting spammed with messages. It's all a debate about whether white South Africans are real Africans or not, which is a very interesting question. And there are people in South Africa who believe that white South Africans are not Africans and that they, they have no business being in the country of South Africa and they need to leave. And then there are people who think that white South Africans are in fact Africans. I'm not going to take either side. I'm going to give you a few other examples from other places in the world. And I'm going to see where your mind takes you. Because what's funny about this situation is it's the reverse politically of many of the other immigration-based scenarios everywhere else on, in the world. I'm going to give you an example. I'll, I'll explain in a second. The left will say that people who came from Syria to Germany in 2016 are now Germans immediately. They're now Swedes immediately. The left are the people who are fastest and most open to tell people who come from foreign nations or foreign lands that they are citizens and they are ethnic people of the country they are now living in. They'll do this as far as, as, as in sh a short time period as 10 years or so. Now, obviously, Pakistanis, Jamaicans came to the United Kingdom in the 1950s. I believe that their grandkids are British. I certainly do. They are, they're British people. Some people will disagree, but the left will certainly agree with me and say that they are British people. So if anyone from anywhere moves to a country, according to the left, anyone from anywhere, because this is their line, this is their hard line, they immediately become a citizen of that country and they immediately become a part of the ethnic background of that country. Does anyone know when white people came to South Africa? Because the United States was, uh, Jamestown was 1619. The first black slaves were brought over. The first white Americans were brought over. They were both founding uh, members of the United States, the black people and the white people. Obviously, the white people were brought over under much better circumstances. But, however, that's when they arrived there. Now, if 1619 is the time when all the whites arrived in America and all the blacks arrived in America, are black people and our white people and our Irish people American? Absolutely they are. They certainly are. My grandfather is a black man. He's American. My father's a black man. He's American. My father's mother was half white. Her father was a white man. He's an American too. White people arrived in South Africa in the 1650s. That's a very, very long time. I know that people who have no grasp of history, no grasp of history, will see white people in South Africa which they think should only have black people in it, and think, well, what are white people doing there? No, 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 we're not talking about people who have went there. If the average generation is 25 years, we are talking about the great, 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 great grandkids of the people who went there. And you're going to tell me they're not South Africans? They absolutely are. I'm not going to tell any South African who they should vote for, what they should do, because I don't honestly know the politics of the country that well. But I do know that the United Nations should take this threat very seriously against the white people of South Africa. They should take it just as seriously as if white nationalists in England were saying we need to kick all the Jamaicans out 
or all the Pakistanis out, that would produce a massive uproar. And the United Nations would be very interested in the people who are leading this movement. I think that this should be taken equally as seriously, more seriously, because violence has been committed on the white South Africans before. Um, and, and I hope that everyone can live in peace and I hope it comes to an end. But there is another situation going on in Africa that people keep asking me about, which is the expulsion of former colonial forces from countries like Niger, from countries like Burkina Faso. And where in South Africa, I say the United Nations needs to move in. The white people have a real legitimate claim to live there and be there. And they are South Africans. I will say that the occupying forces now in Niger and Burkina Faso who are getting kicked out, they're independent countries now. And you are an occupying force. There are white people who uh, are the descendants of people who moved, moved to Burkina Faso and Niger. Those aren't the people who are getting kicked out. Who they're kicking out are the soldiers, politicians, NGOs, uh, all these sorts of, uh, what are they called? Diplomats and bureaucrats that make sure that we can all get hands on their resources nice and cheaply. And I feel like we've given them democracy, we've given them independence, and now they want to do business with people like Russia and China, and they should be able to. The president of Burkina Faso, I've listened to a lot of his speeches recently. He seems like an extremely intelligent young man. I use the word young man because he is actually slightly younger than me. He's one of the world's youngest world leaders. And I would say to the president of Burkina Faso, good luck with your country. I hope that um, any of the crazy world powers that be don't do anything to interfere with, with what you want to do for you and your people. I would say that the West has pushed democracy on Africa very hard over the last 70 years. You have to have democracy. Democracy means the majority of the people make a decision and the minority, sadly, if they don't get enough votes, don't get their own way. And what happens with European democracy when it's pushed on Africa is very sad because they'll say to countries like Uganda. Oh, for God's sake. And what they'll say is to countries like Uganda, hey, you have to have democracy. Democracy is wonderful. It means the majority get to make the rules. And the minority just have to accept it and listen. They'll say, OK, good. OK, we'll do democracy. And then the people will vote for a law that isn't particularly LGBTQ friendly. And America will say, no, you can't do that. And if I was Ugandan, I'd be very confused. I'd be like, well, why were you pushing democracy on us for so long? Only for us to, as a people, make a decision that we want to run our country and tell us that's not okay. Isn't that democracy? Why does America and uh, other countries have a massive interest in this? And I think it's exactly the same. I think it's exactly the same with countries like Burkina Faso. I feel like we've said, this is democracy. It's great. Elect your leaders. Okay, your diamonds, your gold, that goes to France. You sell this to us. You sell this to them. Your uranium, that goes here. And that's the way it is. And they're like, why can't I elect someone who wants to sell my uranium, for example, to the Chinese? They'll pay more money. No, 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 you can't do that. That's not democracy. Well, then what is? So obviously they're going to throw democracy out the window, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, in my opinion, because countries like the UAE aren't democracies and they run better than any countries in the world. It all depends on the hearts of the leaders. And I hope that the leaders in countries like Niger and Burkina Faso have the hearts to back up that the words that they are professing. And I wish them all the best of luck. So I've been asked about Africa lots because a lot of young men who watch me are from African countries. Uh, lots of people in, in the, the third world, in the developing world, 
do watch me. And I thought I'd give my two cents there. So Africa is a very big place. It's a huge continent. It's massive. So in South Africa, the UN needs to defend the white people who live there. And in the West of Africa, I believe that the people there can make the decisions that they like and kick out any bureaucrats from any country that they like anywhere in the world. Am I going to talk about this? No, I'm not. I was going to talk about many of the things that my current situation has taken from me because I've lost a lot. But I'm actually going to discuss just one thing only. One thing. Because this is the way that I look at life. Everyone's like, oh, are you happy now that you're restored to freedom? How happy are you? Are you elated? Are you jumping with joy? I am a happy person. If, I, if they couldn't make me sad, then the restoration of my rights isn't going to make me happy. But I am missing one thing. I spent two years trying to get tickets for a certain train ride, the Orient Express. <sighs> and now I'm going to miss that. I'm super upset. I thought I'd just complain to the world because, you know, rich people problems. All of the things that all the people in the world who have lost, who have ever had anything bad happen to them, I understand. I understand that this pales in comparison, but you have no idea how much I was looking forward to going on the Orient Express. And now I don't get to go, at least this year, which is very sad for me, but justice will be done in the end. And I'm very happy about that. And when justice is done, I guess missing the Orient Express train will be the last worry in my mind. Car alarm's going off because they're trying to fix one of them. Something went wrong. I'm not going to explain exactly what, but it's all good. A question I'm getting from a bunch of Romanians is, is the vampire castle still being built? So for those of you who didn't know, I was in the middle of, well, I was in the process of constructing a vampire castle 900 meters from the historic castle of Vlad Dracula. Dracula has his castle in Bran in Transylvania, where he lived. Dracula the book character is loosely based on a real historical figure from Transylvanian history and Romanian history. And I was going to build a castle 900 meters from him. It was going to be epic. Big gargoyles and dark towers and lightning strikes and a cane with a remote control so I could open the doors and fill it with smoke and light up the candelabras and the chandeliers as though I was Vlad Sepesh himself. I am not building the vampire castle. I'm not. At least not right now. I can't. I don't have access to that land. I'm not sure a huge construction project building a castle right now in this country is necessarily the best move. But um, I am going to be here for probably the rest of my life. In one way or another. So that project has been put on hold. So I know that I had the Instagram page. Infamous Dracula for anyone trying to look for it. Where I was posting images when I first bought the land. I was first doing the sketches. I was first driving up to the land to survey it and take pictures of Dracula's castle from where my land sits. It was going to be awesome. The vampire castle, sadly, is not going to happen. Um, Not yet. But it's okay. Because I don't need a vampire castle. I also want to discuss one more very serious issue. Because I feel like this has been quite a serious cigar night. Because I know a lot of people who watch me don't have the access to the information that I have access to, and they don't have the knowledge that I have, and they don't know a lot of the things that I have, that I know. 
So I want to discuss one more very serious issue while we're in a very serious cigar night before I move on to something else. A woman in Denmark shredded the Quran. I saw her actions described by people on Twitter, not people I like, as brave and controversial. I'm just going to give you my opinion on destroying a Quran, and then I'm going to spin it to some better news. There's no excuse to ever shred a Quran. This woman is an Iranian citizen who is disenfranchised and unhappy with the politics of Iran. If this woman had enough money, or she was industrious enough, or smart enough to make her life for herself, say, in the United Arab Emirates, or in Saudi Arabia, as opposed to Denmark, she'd find herself very happy with the politics of the region. She'd find herself very free. She'd find the laws around her life almost, with almost no restrictions at all. And I believe that she'd be a very happy person. So she's mad at the wrong person, one. Being mad at the politics of Iran and then burning a holy book, which is precious, sacred, to billions of people around the world is like being mad a wasp stang you and, I don't know, dropping a nuclear bomb on an island to kill everything. It's, it's actually disgusting. Uh, it's a gross overreaction, and there's no excuse to offend that many people. I mean, what is the largest population Muslim country in the world? Malaysia. You've offended every Malaysian in the country because you don't like the Ayatollah of Iran. A lot of people disagree with the politics of the Ayatollah of Iran, Iran. But there's absolutely no need to do that. Now, I tried to track down this gentleman's name because this has a pleasant ending. There's no happy ending to this kind of act, but it has a pleasant ending because it shows the dignity and the courage of our Muslim friends and brothers. In Sweden, when a similar clown was doing similar things, a Muslim man, I couldn't find his name. If you know it, tweet it to me, because I'd love to shout him out. Type it in the chat. Let everyone know this man's name. A 32-year-old Muslim man in Sweden applied for permission to burn a Torah and a Bible in the middle of Stockholm city center after the Quran was desecrated. And Sweden, being as liberal and as crazy as it is, they allowed the burning of the Quran in the first place, which they shouldn't have, allowed the burning of the Torah and the Bible. The state of Israel immediately said to its emissaries in Stockholm, this is bad, we need to find some way of stopping this. Oh, so they care when it's their book. That's very interesting. But this man, who is a fucking G, staged the event. Arrived there with his Torah and his Bible. And he said, no. I am better than this, and I am better than these people. I'm not an animal like these people. These books may not be my holy book, but they were holy to some of the prophets. They were holy to billions of people around the world. They're holy to people of the book, and I refuse to burn these books. And he took them home and treated them with reverence. That is a happy ending. And I just feel like, isn't that important? 
Isn't that such a cool way to behave? You know what? Yeah, I could be a dog like you. I could be scum like you. I could treat other people's holy emblems and books and relics like they're garbage and offend everyone in the world because I'm disenfranchised with the country I was born in and I don't like their politics. No, this man was not a baby. This man was a Muslim and he went down there. I've got the name Ahmad Alush is the name that people are telling me in the chat. Ahmad Alush, you are a hero. What you did is one of the most inspiring and, and the things I've seen since, since coming out of jail. It really put a smile on my face. I think you're an absolutely awesome person. No one expected it. No one knew what you were going to do. And you've completely defeated and shown up the enemies of civilization, the enemies of God everywhere in the world. Absolutely beautiful. So everyone, Google this man and look up his story because it, it's almost enough to bring a tear to your eye. It's like, I don't know how he thought of that. Because he should be angry enough to just burn their books back, right? No, he's better than them. He's smarter than them. And uh, yeah, a pleasant ending to a very sad story. But there's no excuse for anybody to be doing that. And Ahmad Alush knew that. And Muslims know that. And most civilized people in the world know that. So no, I do not endorse the burning of anyone's religious text or holy book. And it's sad that that's still making the news, isn't it? It's 2023. I'll say this very quickly, without excuse. I wonder what would have happened to this woman if she had grown up in a adoptive gay family and burnt pride flags. I wonder what would have happened to her. Would they have just said, oh, free speech, free expression? Or for some reason in 2023, do we need to completely defend that mindset, but not the mindset of clean living, chastity, and submission to God? Who knows? Everyone's asking about this watch. I'm gonna, I will actually cover this because it's a question that people keep asking. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to it in the end. So yeah, a very pleasant ending to a very sad chain of events. Uh, hope me, I didn't freeze for too long. Hey Tristan, I heard you talk to your friend Rory Sinnott the other day. You were speaking about talent pools. Can you elaborate that on? Can you elaborate on that a little bit further? Of course I can. What I meant by talent pools, and I didn't get this across as eloquently as I should perhaps in the podcast on Saints and Sinners podcast hosted by my friend Rory Sinnott. Check it out. He's on Rumble. Big star one day. Hold tight, roll on. I was talking about talent pools. I was saying about how there's no talent pools to select any young men or women for anything worth doing anymore. Um, I, I first thought of this when I was watching a interview by Luciana Pavarotti, the last grandmaster of opera, the one of the arguably the greatest opera singer that was ever caught on, on tape or filmed or recorded. And he was once asked famously said, you're the most talented opera male singer in the world. When, when you die, who, who's there, who, who's left? You are irreplaceable. Now he answered a very cool answer. He said, everybody's irreplaceable, which I thought was a very cool reply to that question. However, people like Luciano Pavarotti, people like the greatest guitarists of all time, the greatest boxers, the greatest fighters, athletes, ice skaters, and everything else, all became great because there were loads of people doing it. Luciano Pavarotti didn't become great because they said, we need an opera singer. Can this kid do it? All right, cool. Let's teach him to sing opera. 
now he's the best. No, competition is what drives greatness. Competition in everything. Competition is what drives life. And it's what so many young men forget about nowadays. When I was talking about talent pools, I was saying, look at the hobbies of young men just 25 years ago, just before the internet, maybe just before video games. But let's talk about men's hobbies. When I was young, I used to go kickboxing. I used to play the guitar. I used to take piano lessons. I used to do karate. I tried lots of various different things and I became very good at some of the things and I wasn't so good at other things. I became a very respectable kickboxer. I was no world champion, but I was a very respectable kickboxer. I got the broken nose and everything to, to prove that I wasn't perfect. But all of my time and effort went into trying to become good at this certain thing. And kickboxing was a very big sport back then. K1 Global was huge. Glory kickboxing was huge. And fusion kickboxing was huge. Why were they huge? Because there were lots of people actively spending three or four hours a day trying to do this one thing and then compete at it. What are young men doing today? I sadly feel like the last great boxers and the last great everything we may have already seen. I mean, the best gamers, the best computer programmers we're, we're going to see in the future, fine, because these, these are things that are attracting all of the young men. But I asked a friend of mine, he has four sons, not a friend of mine, sorry, a guy I know, he has four sons. I said, bro, what do your sons like doing all day? He was like, oh, they like playing games on their phone. And I was like, is this the future of the Western world? What are they contributing to earth, to the talent pool of anything that we could possibly pull these young men out of and make them a useful person in society if they play games on their phones? And that's what they do. If you are a young man, make sure you are doing something. You can ask me what I did. I was a kickboxer, played the guitar read a bunch of books, studied languages for fun in my spare time. <sighs> it's very, very sad. So I did cover this on the Saints and Sinners podcast, but I feel like the last great days of society, not of humanity, technology is going to get amazing. Life's going to get amazing for those people who still want to compete, still want to do the work, still want to rise to the top of the top. Life's going to get better than ever. You're going to have teleportation and private flying cars and all that kind of stuff because someone's going to invent that. And as technology gets better, Quality of life is going to get better for those people at the top. I feel it's going to get worse for everyone else. I just can't. They're so uninspiring. Don't be an uninspiring person. Don't. If you had to describe yourself in five words, are any of those words anything that a young person might think, oh, that's cool. I'd like to do that. A kickboxer, one word to describe me. There are young guys in the world who might think, oh, I'd like to become a kickboxer. If your words are, Gamer, aspiring streamer, uh, porn fanatic, TikToker, and legend, or whatever you call yourself. Does anyone actually have any use for you in this world? The answer is probably no, which is sad. So I feel like if you're a youngster and you have a talent or you want to develop a talent, send me messages on Twitter or I'll retweet you. If you start playing guitar and play something really cool on guitar, I'll retweet you. If you're a professional ice skater and you do something really cool on the ice skates, I'll retweet you. Young people need to be encouraged more to have talents and do things that are very interesting. And they don't anymore. 
None of your questions on the super chats are particularly that interesting. Do a shout out to this, do a shout out to that. I want to thank you. I'm very happy that you're on a house arrest. I appreciate all the congratulations. How many languages do I speak? I'm actually going to answer this one. I'm going to answer it because I've, there's loads of speculation around it. And I'm going to answer it with a story. I think I'm going to finish this stream with this story. When people ask me how many languages I speak, I say almost one. Now there's a story behind that and it's going to make a lot of sense when you learn why I say it. When I was about 16, 17 years old, I spoke Slovak relatively well. Better than I do today because I've forgotten a lot of it. I used to live with some Slovak people. I lived with them for two years. One of my best friends was a guy from Slovakia. He's still, still my friend to this day. And I used to visit Slovakia with my friend. I was 17 years old, 18 years old. I was a very young man. So my father was at my house in England, at my mother's house. And he'd go from zero to 100 really quick. Chilled to furious in half a second. You wouldn't even see it coming. So he's talking to me and he's saying, oh, how you like it out there in Slovakia? You've been visiting Eastern Europe. I visited Eastern Europe when I was a young man. I was like, yeah, Slovakia is cool. I like it out there. And he goes, you're right out there. Like, I mean, do you trust the people out there? I said, yeah, don't worry, dad. I know I, I could speak Slovak. And his face dropped. He said, you don't speak Slovak. I said, I do kind of, I mean, not the best, but I kind of do. He said, you don't speak Slovak. You don't even speak English. And I said, what the fuck does he mean? I don't even speak English. So he said to me, he goes, okay, in Slovak, translate this sentence. The hovercraft is infested with eels. Translate it. I said, the hovercraft? Don't know. Infested? Don't know. With? I knew. Eels? Didn't know. Didn't know? I didn't know. I said, dad, look, I don't know. See, he goes, you don't speak Slovak. I told you. You don't even speak English. Then he put together a sentence in the English language that I didn't understand. I can't repeat what he told me to this day because they were words that I did not know in English. And I don't speak English as well as I should. And I realized it then at 18 years of age. And he shut me down completely and silenced me with my arrogance and my stupidity to think that to a professional linguist or to somebody who considered him a linguist of my dad's level, that I could even brag that I speak any language. So when someone says, how many languages do you speak? The answer I will always give is almost one. I speak some Slovak. I speak some Polish. Romanian, obviously. I live here. Um, but English, almost. But yeah, the answer is almost, almost one. But I'm conversational on a few. And the next language I would like to learn is Arabic. And I'm getting there. This house is big. The table is small. I'm getting the basics now. I'm going to put them together. But uh, I have some good friends to help me with that. And you can all wish me luck because apparently that's a lot more difficult than the, than the other languages that I know parts of. What watch am I wearing? Everyone's asking this watch that I'm wearing. This watch is not for sale yet, but it will be for sale one day because somebody from the war room makes them. It has my logo on it and it's called a Grandmaster, made in Switzerland. I don't know how much they're going to sell it for. I don't know when it's going to be available for sale. I'm not plugging it. I'm not pushing it, but it is pretty cool. I will admit that. So he gets his free plug tonight. I wear it because a lot of my other watches, a lot of them, not all of them, were sequestered by Decock. 
So they have my watches for now. I'm going to finish this stream by talking about... Actually, no. I'm not going to talk about her. I was going to talk about... I'm not going to say her name on my stream. A certain American sportswoman who made her whole career about asking for equal pay and completely fucked up last night and lost the country the World Cup. Uh, that was very, very interesting. But on this serious podcast, which I've covered lots of serious topics on, I don't feel like I need to get to that. I'm not going to belittle her. It's hard being a professional sportswoman. Her crusade for equal pay was fucking stupid. But, I mean, she won the World Cup at least once, so... Good for her. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bring her down. It was when I when I was tired and lethargic this morning. The question came in on Twitter. I thought, oh, I can make a bunch of jokes about this. But as I said at the beginning of this podcast, and I'll finish exactly where I started talking about Jamie Fox. No one could take jokes anymore, and everyone would cry, and it'd be in the newspapers. So I'm just gonna leave it at that, and wish you all a wonderful night. Bahiki Fifty Two, best cigar in the world. Buy some. Tweet your photos at me. Don't drink and drive.